chapter 18, verses 38 through 40. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Emily. How's everybody doing? Super Bowl fans of the room? I'm surprised at how many people aren't watching the Super Bowl. I'm a little disappointed in our church, but whatever. This is who God has given us and given me to pastor. Uh, Jack, are you watching the Super Bowl? Oh, yes. That makes me, that makes my heart so happy. More than you know. More than you know. Well, uh, it is February 2022. We wrapped up our financial kind of life of 2021, and we just want to give you an update. It's actually just a lot of celebrating God's goodness, God's faithfulness, what we just sang. He's been very faithful. Uh, so just a little backstory. If you're new, if this is your first time, we planted this church at the beginning of last year, so we're just over a year old. We're a year and some days old. We are a baby church. We were sent out from another redemption congregation in a far far away land, Queen Creek, Arizona, to this central Phoenix area to plant this church, and a few other people from other redemptions have joined up, and it's been a great ride, but part of like how church actually can function and be healthy is through the finances, the giving, the generosity of the people, and I want to invite up a guy that is behind the scenes with all this, uh, Dan Blackwell. Oh, Aubrey's excited about this guy. Dan Blackwell, come You got the early clap from my wife. Congratulations. She doesn't early clap for anyone, but... The finance man, she is, we got that on? Yeah, we got him on? He's a finance guy. There we go. There we go. So I'm going to just give a quick rundown of sort of end of year summary. If you're a CPA like this guy, this is exciting and this really kind of, you know, you're passionate about this. If you're like... Uh, the rest of society, you're like, okay, I, I get it, but I, I'm, I'm not, it's not lighting my fire. So here was our projected budget. So the way we came up with this, remember, 2019, 2020 is like, what is happening? Nobody can project out a day in advance, let alone a year. We're like, how much money are we going to need to do ministry? We kind of said, let's think around 235. What we actually spent was 265 in expenses. That's personnel, facilities, giving, events, ministry, outward focus, all that sort of stuff. Uh, The giving that was brought in from this church, from this church body, this church family was just shy of 300. So 293,400. Yeah, that gets a whistle or two. And then redemption support. So redemption as a whole is a church planning uh, church. We want to plant more churches. So they actually give to us over the course of three years on kind of a scaling effect. But that's how much we receive from redemption churches, which is like people that have gone on to be with the Lord. They're giving. It's just a beautiful story of how God's faithfulness works generation to generation. And then a month ago in December, we gave an Advent offering. We raised $14,000. So we're going to give $7,000 to House of Refuge just down the road, 7th Street, and then $7,000 to Habitat for Humanity to help with a church revital or a home revitalization revitalization project in Sunny Slope, just on the other side of the mountain. So, uh, all that to say, we brought in way more than we needed. You guys have been generous, and this year we're already kicking off with a lot of generosity. But I want to just kind of talk about those two notes, and then I'm going to let Dan just kind of give his financial hat overview of all this. So, uh, all this said, we had a hundred thousand dollars in surplus. So, what we spent. And what came in, there was a $100,000 gap. That is amazing. And that was kind of built into what Dan and I and the board sort of hoped early on is that we would be good stewards. And that's 
good stewardship, which is you guys' generosity and all the volunteers. Amy leads a ministry and uses the budget quite a bit. So it's like not just me. It's across the board, paid staff and volunteers. We had $100,000 surplus. So with redemption, I know it sounds like a lot, we get to keep 70% of that into our savings, and then 30% goes to redemption-wide savings to continue God's movement through this church. So there's a reservoir of money in redemption given to sort of focus uh, church planning stuff. And then that being said, with our money kind of being around 300000 our budget set for this upcoming year, the one we're in, 2022, is at $300,000. So that's sort of the numbers. I should have let the numbers guy say it, but I wanted more so your heart kind of in the financial world. So as we looked ahead and planted a church, you moved with us in the middle of COVID to plant this thing. What was sort of your hope financially in 2021? Did you have big dreams? Were you scared? What was your hope? Um, probably in between. Yeah. I would say that when we sat down and, and thought through what all we would need for the first year, um, we were more conservative with the dollar amount, um, just not knowing what it'd be like economically or who would be Right. you know, joining the church, um, who God would be leading here. And um, <clears throat> I'd say the number that we chose, we really said, okay, this is the number of what we think we need, and we want to be good stewards of whatever it is that comes through. So um, we wanted to show redemption that uh, we weren't going to be this kind of <laughs> child running around doing whatever we wanted financially. <laughs> and then we also wanted to make sure that we're being very, very prayerful over whatever financial decisions that were being made. So. so like a cautious optimism, but we wanted to be good stewards out of the gate. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'd say probably even yeah, just m middle of the road. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then as you look back, so you get to see all the finances. You see the giving. You're the only one that kind of has eyes on all that. It's not like you spend a ton of time just scouring over what people are giving. But right. you're the one that gets to see it all and kind of be the over. What are you celebrating as far as God and his faithfulness through our people and our giving. Yeah. Um, so like Josh said, I am the only one that prints those reports, but I don't look at it individually. I'll look at it from a total number given each week. And in 2021, each week that grew basically in proportion of the people that would, that would come. So that was really encouraging. And it just is a testament to the generosity of, hmm. of you all and kind of like your walk with Christ and how you trust that you want a place where he can be known and, um, and, and uh, witness to. So. Well, thank you, man. You've done a lot of work. You're not paid. This is all volunteer, and you're a busy man, dad, and CPA. But would you just pray and thank God for his sure. generosity since yeah. you've kind of watched all this from the beginning? So would you pray with us? Yeah. Father God, thank you for um, a church that we can come to and uh, participate in and get to know you better, Lord, and just worship you and love you and um, um, do what we can to align our wills with you, Lord God. And um, I pray that you continue uh, providing for us with both people who are willing to serve and people who are willing to give their hard-earned money, Lord. And um, I just pray for the hearts of all of us in this congregation that we can draw near to you and continue trusting you, Lord, and, and following you, Lord Christ, um, in every moment of the day, Lord. And, and we're just so thankful, and I, I pray that you convict us um, in a way that allows us to understand that this this is just a true blessing from you and, mm. and not our own works, Lord. And uh, we love you. And Jesus, we love you for, and we thank you for saving our lives. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Can you thank Dan with me?
Seriously, the early clap for my wife is the greatest honor any human being can be given. So congrats. If you want more details, we have a little half sheet of just budget, kind of where money went last year. We have it at the info desk. You can grab it. Please ask me questions, Dan questions, somebody you think might have some answers. But we want to be open, transparent, and just we really want to praise God. So we're praising God that he has provided so far in year one of our church. So that's what we have now. And now we get to dive into the gospel of John. And in this little picture that uh, Emily just read, it's just an illustration that we're going to use to springboard into some deep spiritual truths. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. And this picture is worth a billion words because it illustrates what we believe to be true about the church and what we have to offer this world. Like no picture is greater than what we're about to see right here. I mean, I think about my house, the picture of my house right now that is just running through my mind and my heart. And I'm like, I just want to squeeze this moment into a bottle and just drink it up forever. It's Ozzy. Ozzy is starting T-ball. He's four years old and he gets to play baseball now and he needs baseball dubs, which are baseball gloves. So we bought him baseball batting gloves and he has not taken them off. I took, I woke him up from his nap yesterday. He's under the sheets. I pulled down the sheets and there he is with his baseball dubs on. If I could just take that picture and put it here and just never let it leave my heart. That's the picture I want. That's so beautiful and sweet. This picture of Barabbas and Jesus is the picture of Christianity that I want all of us to kind of put here and just to remember. And some of us already have, so I just want this to be a, a time of remembering for some of us. Those of us who have trusted in Jesus, I'm not going to say anything new or profound. I might use a few new words, but what I'm going to walk through is something that is core to being a follower of Jesus. I just hope we just leave here like, ah, that's what, I, that's what this is about. If you're new, if you're figuring out the faith, I hope you with clarity see the difference between Christianity and anything else this world has to offer. It is the beauty seen in this picture of Barabbas and Jesus. It's a picture of what theologians call penal substitution. Now you're like, I've never heard that before. It's not really a word you use in common language. If you want to go show off tomorrow, you can sit down with your friends and be like, hey, would you guys like to talk about penal substitution, just to show them how smart you are. You can do that. But it's the word at the core of what theologians and leaders for years and years and years have used to describe what we're seeing now with Barabbas and Jesus and what it means for a Christian to be forgiven of their sins. All these songs we just sang. You're faithful. You forgave me of my sins. It was you who did the work. What are we celebrating? We're celebrating penal substitution. So I want this to be clarifying, simple. One sweet lady leaving said, thank you for that simple message. And she didn't mean it. She's like, I just need to be reminded that th that's what this is about. That's, that's, how I, that's how God got a hold of me, is that. So I'm going to walk through five simple questions. Here's the five questions. What is penal substitution? What is the punishment? Who is the sacrifice? Why do people object to this beautiful truth that we sing about and preach about and build our church life on? And then how do we receive this substitution. So again, those are the five questions we're going to walk through, use this story as sort of an illustration of it, uh, and we're going to pray and ask God to really take that image and put it here for us, maybe for the first time. So would you bow your heads and pray and just ask God to meet us? God, as the Apostle Paul says, we're not uh, peddlers of the word. We're not trying to impress with lofty language. So in this moment, keep me from trying to be overly cute or insightful. I just want to tell myself and our church what you've done. And I want us to believe it. I want us to remember it. 
I want us to remember what it was like to breathe this air for the first time. And I want us to walk out of here more in love with you because of your goodness and faithfulness to us, Lord. So make that happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there it is. That's what we're doing, walking through. Here's the first question. What is penal substitution? What is penal substitution? I want to do it this way. I'm going to share a few quotes to sort of get at it, and then I want to look at this picture we have with Barabbas and Jesus, and then I want to dive into sort of pastorally some concern and hope I have for us as a church. So here's a quote on penal substitution from a a theologian named F. Dale Bruner. He says this. This is the essence of penal substitution, penalty substitute, legal substitute. He who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything, So that we who have done everything wrong would be condemned for nothing. Penal substitution. We who have done everything wrong get substituted in place with he who has done nothing wrong. And we take his place, he takes ours. That is amazing. Here's another one. John Stott, a British guy, beautiful theologian. He says this. Here's the essence of sin. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Let me pause right there. What does he mean? Genesis 3, in the garden, what does Adam and Eve sin? They want to be like God. The serpent tricks them. You could be more like God. Just take it and eat it. Okay. And then that is the course of human history from that moment on to the point of where we get to Romans, a book in the New Testament. Paul is sort of surveying the world, and he spends the first four chapters saying, this is what sin is. And at the core of it, he says this, we've taken the truth of God and exchanged it for a lie, the lie being that we could be in charge. That's sin, substituting. We want to be God. I don't want anyone else to be in charge of my life. I'll be in charge. However, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. We want to be like God. We want the glory that God has. And God could have left us fine. You see how that works. He steps down and substitutes himself for us. And here's just the passage Emily read just to see it. As an illustration point, how beautiful that Barabbas gets to be one of the most beautiful illustrations we have of Jesus and his work. Barabbas, just a sinner, broken like you and I, and he gets inserted into the story. Here's the passage. And after he had said this, this is Pilate. So Jesus is in the middle of his trials. He's closer and closer and closer to the cross. He goes back outside. So he's in his house. He goes back outside to the Jewish mob who's trying to have Jesus killed. And he tells him this, I find no guilt in him. Pilate says, there's nothing about this man that causes me to want to punish him. He is spotless. He is blameless. He is perfect. He is righteous. Whatever language you want to use, I find him guiltless. But Pilate, being just like most leaders, sort of self-preserving all the time, he's like, I got to get out of this. Verse 39. But you, Jews, have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. It's sort of the Romans throwing them a bone. You sort of dig into this, and there's not a ton of proof of this custom, but the fact that he's saying there's something to Romans could throw the Jews a bone while letting one of their people go free during this Passover celebration. He's like, all right, here's your last chance. You can get Jesus out of this mess. Jesus could be released. So who do you want me to release to you? The king of the Jews? Here's your shot, Israel. To do right. What do they say? They cried out again, not this man. Pointing to Jesus. God in the flesh. Not him. Not my creator. Not my redeemer. Not my perfect God in heaven. Not him. But rather Barabbas, who was a robber. 
And we'll go find out a little bit more of him later. We don't want him. We want him. We want these two substituted for each other. That is penal substitution. The one who has no guilt in place of the one who is guilty, a robber. That is the gospel. Any of us in this room that trust and love and follow Jesus, what happened at some point is our eyes were open to this reality. Whether you're a six-year-old kid in a great home, a 10-year-old kid in a decent home, you're an 18-year-old in a busted, broken home like me, you're a 50-year-old man who's lived his whole life apart from God, at some point God opened your eyes to see, oh, not this man, but me. That is the gospel. The innocent gets punished, so the guilty robber goes free. That's why we're pausing here as a church and just we want to get this. This matters a lot. Charles Spurgeon says this about this idea of penal substitution. It is our delight. He's a British pastor from back in the day, passed away, but he's kind of a guy you're supposed to quote from time to time just to prove your chop. So and this was great. I read this the other day. It is our delight to preach the doctrine of substitution. Because we are fully persuaded that no gospel is preached where substitution is omitted. The gospel of Jesus Christ has all these beautiful things about it. It's sort of like a Jenga blockhouse. There's lots of elements about what Jesus has accomplished and what it means for me. He has ransomed me from Satan. He has provided eternal life. He's done all these things. There's all these elements that are part of this. It's a big, beautiful house that all of us have a a skewed and short-sighted view of. However, here's what we need to know. If we pull out the substitution block on our Jenga house, Spurgeon says you lose the gospel. If you take substitution out of it, you no longer have Christianity. Might as well be a Muslim or a Mormon or whatever other religion is trying to build their own house of greatness to show to God one day. If we take that out, we are hosed. Substitution is at the core of the gospel. And just so you know, pastorally, when I think about discipling people, pastoring people, like everybody has this center in them that they, everything flows from. Proverbs says uh, the, the heart is the center of all wellsprings of life, meaning everything is coming out of a center. Like my anger is not just sparked because my kids. There's something inside of me going wrong. And with a, when I think about theology and Jesus, and we, Redemption Church, think about discipling people, there's a center with sort of three very important circles. And here's what I'm talking about. When we talk about the gospel, it means everything about Jesus. We want our center to be big and beautiful. And here's at the very center of that is the person of Jesus. I want all of you, I want me to have a deep, passionate, loving relationship with the person of Jesus. And I want him to influence me more than any other person in the world. I want to learn how to love Aubrey by watching Jesus love people who did not love him in return. I want to learn how to love my in-laws by reading the gospel and seeing Jesus on display. I want to learn everything about life from the person of Jesus. I want Jesus in my life and in our lives. That's important. Like watching Jesus on display. Like, gosh, he is amazing. But then the, the top ring, the other blue ring, the path. Jesus also gives us the path of life. What is life all about? We're going to go watch a Super Bowl. Some of us are going to go watch a Super Bowl later on. And there's going to be plenty of commercials telling us, here's what life is about. Allstate, don't become your parents. All right, check. I don't want to be a lame old person. Get rich. Get this. Here's what life is about. And Jesus has a very simple statement. Do you want to follow me? Do you? Yes? Okay, then pick up your cross 
and follow me. Jesus says following me is like going down into death. Not once. I did that for you to take that punishment. But every single day of your life. On the Zoom meeting you're in tomorrow where that guy is obnoxious. With your husband or your wife. Like I met with a guy and he was describing marriage and it was like such a beautiful moment because it was like this is maturity and great discipleship. He described his wife and it's like it's, you know, I'm learning how to die to myself more. And like nobody writes that in your poetry to, that you give to your wife when you propose, but that is the essence of any good relationship is somebody or both people saying, I'm going to choose to die to myself for the sake of you because that's what love tells me to do. Where do we get that from? The path of Jesus. It says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, pause right there. You could have all four Gospels memorized. I've watched Jesus. 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 And have a beautiful picture of what love looks like in the flesh. You could then also have this deep, resounding desire to lay down your life for others. But you could also not be a Christian. You could be void of the most important part of the circle, namely the work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the work is. What did Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension accomplish? He didn't just come down here to be an example so I could look at it and be like, oh, that's how it's done. He did not just come out down here to kind of wave high from heaven and then go back up. I'll see you soon. He came down here because work needed to be done. What's the work that needed to be done? Penal substitution. Somebody had to be a sacrifice. Somebody had to take on the punishment of the world. That's why he came down. And as we talk about penal substitution, that work piece, what did Jesus do that I take, can't take credit for, but I will benefit from? What is it that he did? He is our penal substitute. He substituted my punishment, and he took it himself. That takes us to our second question. Well, what is the punishment then? Like, as we think about faith and like, think about your person that knows the least about Christianity in your life. Maybe it's you in this room. You're like, this is all new to me. What's the punishment for sinful man and woman? Because none of us are going to face a cross. That was a very historical thing that happened in the time of the Romans. Like, what's the punishment? First of all, you've got to know that you deserve a punishment. And here's why punishment has entered the world. It's called sin. God told you I'm not going to say anything profound or grandiose. Sin. The key word used for sin in the Bible is this idea of missing the mark. It's like there's a target. I pull back. So I'm a bow hunter, not a very good one. I've missed a ton of shots. There's arrows all over northern Arizona that belong to me <laughs> that aren't in animals. But I've killed, you know, decent. And then I took up rifle hunting. I'm like, this is a joke, like this is no work whatsoever. So I didn't go practice. I just took my rifle up there. And my first rifle hunt with an elk, took three shots at one elk, missed them all. <laughs> my dad's like, really? This is embarrassing. I missed the mark. Adam and Eve started this trend, and we all continue in it. We have all missed the mark. What mark? The mark of what a human is supposed to be like. However that flesh is out for you currently, in your dating relationship, you can fill in the dots. In your work relationships, you can fill in the dots. Like, what would a perfect human look like in this situation? We have missed the mark. Therefore, there's punishment. Or there's consequence if that word's too harsh. 
But God, if he's holy and righteous and a good judge, he has to deal with the fact that marks are being missed. Marks that hurt, being missed that hurt you, hurt me. It's not like our, our individual lives are disconnected. We're all interconnected. My decisions hurt people. Your decisions hurt people. What's God going to do? How is he going to punish this? I think the Bible gives two overarching themes for what the punishment is that we all sit under. The first is the idea of exile. So if you have your Bible, slip over to Genesis 3 if you can. It's the beginning of the book. That's why I ask you to go there. It's easy to get to. But this is God talking. After we have chosen to rebel. The first arrow of humanity is flung towards the mark and it misses drastically. We did not listen to him. Genesis 3, verse 22 through 24. This is how God describes the punishment now for Adam and Eve. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, punishment, the Lord God sent him out up from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the the way to the tree of life. Pause right there. Adam and Eve are in perfect union with God. Harmony. They're walking. They're frolicking. They're singing. They're dancing. It's like my middle son, Roman, who just is so full of life. This is the Garden of Eden, and you get to do whatever you want, eat whatever you want, except this one thing. And they do it, and God exiles them, removes them from the garden with no chance of getting back in because then he puts up a protection so they can't get back in. What does that mean? You cannot come into the presence of God anymore. You, Adam and Eve, have been exiled you have been removed from my presence because of your sin you can't come in I brought this book up here just I love I want to be a children's writer one day whenever I learn how to write good books but this is my favorite children's book as far as sharing the gospel with kids regarding the curtain the cross because of our sin we can't come in it's all about this idea we chose to rebel and then God pursues us pursues us pursues us but the problem is proximity In presence, we have been exiled. We have been kicked out. We have been removed. Not like at a certain point when our sin turns the meter and it gets too much and God kicks us out. We are born this way. We're all of the same father, Adam. Like I think about Ozzy. Like there's not a point where God's watching him. And there, that's the moment. You get out of my presence, Ozzy. Ozzy is born with the same problem his dad has, that I'm the son of Adam. Like, there's been plenty of moments where I'm like, Ozzy, knock it off. But God's not waiting for a moment. It's just the reality. We are exiles. We are out of the presence of God, apart from penal substitution. The other punishment is this. In Genesis 2.17, flip back just to the section there. This is God giving them truth before they wanted to listen to him. Is that what he described what happened? But... Eat of anything, do whatever you want. Genesis 2, verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I just want to watch this play out. You shall surely die. But they don't die. Like, they take a bite. They have juice dripping down their chin. But in that moment, death is now in the world. Which means our idea of death limited to just the physical death, that's very important. And God wants that to be the thing we all see to say, yep, that's 
punishment on this earth is bigger than just physical death. It's spiritual. It's emotional. Our soul and spirit and bodies have now died. We live in a world of decay. And Adam and Eve one day will breathe their last and they die. And every human sense dies. Why? Because the punishment for sin is exile from the presence of God and death. We are all born far away from God and we live in a world of death that is on us as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says this. This is Paul's summary statement about humanity. Everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, period. So that's the punishment. You say, what about the wrath of God? That's in there too. But the wrath of God, the way it's experienced is through separation and death. What's the punishment? Don't eat of it. If you do, you will be dead. And they eat of it. And because they ate of it, he then kicked them out of their presence. And now we live in a world where we're all under exile and a world of death. However, as the old church people would say, thanks be to God, we have a substitute. Well, who is the substitute? Before we get to Jesus, sort of what's the substitute background God sets up throughout Scripture for us to sort of perk our ears to find him who would fix this problem? And it's very clear, and it's very barbaric, and it's very not our modern day and age way of thinking. But here's what God does. He sets up this system of blood being everywhere. How am I going to enter this world and fix this world and be a substitute in this world? God uses blood over and over and over and over again. One guy says 362 times in the Old Testament, blood is talked about. In the New Testament, as we talk about blood and the death of Jesus, blood is used five times more frequently than the death of Jesus. It's like you are not going to escape this reality. Blood, 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 blood. And just for you, it's not like I naturally think about blood a lot. Every time I give blood, I pass out. It's just They always take a lot. I'm O negative. I'm like the sexiest blood you can have. Everybody wants it. And I pass out. I can never be a doctor. I don't think about blood, but as a preacher, as a Christian, I come to this Bible, and the Bible has to give me the categories that I have to use and we have to use. And as God starts to talk about a sacrificial system, the word blood is what comes to mind. And if we were Old Testament Jews, we'd be around blood, the smell of blood, the feel of blood all the time. It's like this blood-saturated culture. Why? Because blood is the sacrifice that's going to be made. The substitute is going to involve blood all over. Adam and Eve sin. God kills an animal and covers them. What's involved? Blood. Israel goes into Egypt, is enslaved for 400 years. How are the people of God going to be removed from this slavery, from this bondage, from all this issue and heaviness that they have to deal with? How are they going to escape and leave through blood? The Israelites would put blood on the doorstop. And the angel of death would pass over that house. And if there was a house where there was no blood on the doorpost, God went into that house through the angel of death and killed the firstborn. And we're like, God, that doesn't sit well with me. I get it. But God's painting a picture and he's creating the themes that we need to grab hold of. Blood is going to be the substitute. Specifically, the blood from who? Blood from who? And we know the church answer if you're, Jesus, yes, this would be the chance to get it right. But why Jesus? Why is Jesus the substitute? And it's as simple as this. He had to be like us in every way except for one so that he could stand in the position of being the bloody 
substitute for our sin. Hebrews describes it this way. But when Christ had offered for all time a sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering of blood, he has perfected for all time those of us who are being sanctified. How is the substitute here? It's through blood. Specifically, blood is someone who is like us, but not like us. And that person is Jesus Christ. Why does he have to be like us? He has to be able to relate to what it's like to be a human. My favorite country singer is Eric Church. Saw him in concert before COVID destroyed all that. I love him. He's said a few controversial things. One of the most controversial things he's ever said was he was bagging on Carrie Underwood. You just don't touch Carrie Underwood if you're like, she's like this, you know, America's girl. But he said this about her. He said, the way she came into this industry is not the way it should be. How did Eric Church make a bid? He went to a dumpy little bar, and he tried it out, and he was terrible. Then he got booed. And then he went to the next dumpy little bar, tried it out, got booed. Worked his way through the system until now he's Eric Church who gets to fill stadiums. What did Carrie Underwood do? She went on American Idol. And she sort of bypassed the bumpiness of what most people had experienced up until then to get into stardom. And Jesus did not take the Carrie Underwood route. He came on the ground and he lived the life that we all have to live. First of all, he was an Israelite. He picked an ethnicity. He is a Jewish man. Like the thing that blows my mind so often, I don't know why it does, it just does because I just don't think this way often, but he's a Jewish man. When I worship in the new heavens and earth, I'm going to be looking at a Middle Eastern man, worshiping him, loving him, praising him. Why? Because he put on an ethnicity. He took on a story, the Israelite story. And all throughout the New Testament, it's all these echoes of, look at Jesus is doing this again. He's doing what Israel once did. His virgin birth is supposed to reflect back to Sarah's barren womb. Israel's wife is not going to have a kid. And then miraculously she does. And Jesus is this miraculous virgin birth. They spent time in Egypt under bondage. And Jesus' early days are spent in Egypt. Why? Because he's reflecting back. He is living the story. He is not going above. He is going in and through the story of Israel. The Jews go into the wilderness. God has to provide manna for them in the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. Why? To be tempted, yes, but also to say, I am fully Israelite. I'm a Jewish man, and I'm going through the same stuff you've had to go through. I am like you in every possible way. But then zoom out. He's more than just an Israelite. He's a human. Like, he shares the same stuff we all have to go through as humans in this world. He can relate to every single thing we've gone through. He's been in it. He's done it. Like, the empathy and compassion of Jesus is something we don't think often enough about. Like, I'm all alone. Maybe if you just look at your own home, but if you think about Jesus, he's there with you. He's been through that. Like, everything we've been through. Our kids are all into Encanto right now. Any Encanto fans right now? No, yes, we got one. Oh, such a good movie. Such a good movie. You guys, Nathan, your kid's not all up for Encanto yet. We don't talk about brew. No, no, no. But I'm watching it, and I love Disney movies. But this one has kind of hit closer to home. It reminds me of my nana. So the Mexican grandma who's sort of the matriarch. And it's all about sort of her hard edges and how she ran her family. And then you get to the final point. Sorry to give it away if you haven't seen it yet. 
But it's like it's all tied to like this pain and hurt and scaredness she's felt as a widow. So she like grabs hold like we all do in a world we can't control. So we just try to control stuff and she's trying to control stuff. And I just think, oh, that's Nana. That's where her hard edges come from. But then I think about Jesus. Jesus dealt with all the same people with the same hard edges we had to deal with. His mother had fears and insecurities and tried to control stuff. His brothers were turds. He's, done, he's been through it all. He is like us in every possible way except for one. He is without sin. And you could spend a lifetime studying the Bible and seeing the perfection of Jesus, or you can listen to the words of Pilate. Pilate, what do you think about this guy? You're an objective third-party voice. What do you say? He says this, I find no guilt in him. Summary statement of Jesus' life. He had to be like us in every possible way except for one. He could not have any guilt to bring into the equation. He had to be perfect, and he was. What's the punishment? Exile and death. Who's the substitute? Jesus, the perfect substitute. Here's my question. Why do people object to this? Why would anyone object to this? Oh, I can have all my sins placed on him and I get all his freedom and pleasure with the Father? Why would anyone object to this? I, I mean, there's lots of reasons I kind of boil them down three. The first is simply this. I'm not that bad. Punishment's not that necessary. It's like, ah, Jesus says it this way. Why do you point out all the wood in other people's eyes when you have this two-by-four sticking out of your own eye? You don't even live up to your own standard of judgment. Why are you trying to play the role of God? Francis Schaeffer, a theologian who's passed away, says it like this. We all have these goggles that we go through the world in and how we judge everyone. It's kind of like when you and your spouse are alone or you or your closest friends, like the things that come out of you, like you know it's not right, but yeah, that person is like this. We all have that. That's just a fact. Blaise Pascal said, if everyone knew everything that was said about each other, nobody would have friends. We'd all be walking around friendless because we all talk about each other behind each other's back. Why? Because we're judgmental. I'm included. Schaefer says this, if you put on the goggles that you created with your own judgments, you would not even live up to your own standard for a day. And you're going to say, yeah, but I'm going to live up to the standard of the holy, righteous one. No, we all deserve punishment. Here's another way to just help this. Is the word punishment I get is intense? And it's part of what the Bible is trying to, but the Bible is trying to bro, paint a broader picture. The problem that the Bible is trying to address is not how God randomly picks off and punishes people that he sees running away in rebellion. The problem the Bible is trying to solve is how does a holy, perfect, righteous God come down to earth and live with unholy, sinful men and women? When you think about it that way, it's like, okay, what's the sin and punishment is God's way to cleanse this earth so that he could actually live on this earth once again what was the temple all about the temple was this beautiful thing the jews had where the center was the holy of holies where god's presence would dwell what was he doing he was cleansing a spot for his presence to be known in and among his people and now jesus christ has generously distributed that presence to anyone who trusts him by faith but the thing that we're not that bad is just not Biblical, it's not even using common sense. The second thing, this is a little more, this gets lofty. If you have friends who dig deep and trying to like find stuff with Christianity, kind of what are the skeletons in the closet? This is one of the sort of popular statements to make about why this is wrong. And it's basically this. Uh, the death of Jesus on the cross by his father's will is like cosmic child abuse. I could not follow a God that's a cosmic child abuser. And where do they get that? Well, God put him there, 
It's a horrific death. Therefore, this cosmic child abuse. One author that got famous probably 20 years ago says this about it. It makes God out to be a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. One of the popular illustrations is sort of a train barreling down. And there's two tracks it can ultimately take. Humanity or Jesus. And God the Father kind of in the background pulls it last minute and it swerves from humanity to hit Jesus. The huge problem with that is the Bible does not paint that picture at all. It says Jesus, by his own will, laid down his life. The book of Hebrews says Jesus set his eyes like fire as he went towards the cross. Jesus wanted this. For God so loved the world. God wanted this, but not a, he wanted it out of love. So this idea that the father is this bad father and he's pushing Jesus in the way of our sin, that's just not. They are Father, Son, Holy Spirit working together out of love to create a way for sinful man to be in relationship with Holy God once again. And here's the other big one. This is kind of very popular. Well, can't just God just forgive it? Like just wipe it? He's God. He could do anything. He created zebras and Pikachus and all these things. Like he could just wave his hand. And the reality is any forgiveness comes at a cost. Any forgiveness. Relationally, that's true. Financially, that's true. Like the housing crash of when I was coming out of college, all my friends bought a house. I'm like, dude, I would not trust you with my Super Nintendo, let alone a loan for a house. And you've got a loan for this. So everybody buys a house when I come out of college. And all my friends foreclose on their house. And we're all looking around like, who's going to pick up this bill? And we're like, we can't. Well, the banks can't do it. We're like, why? Well, they're too big to fail. So Uncle Sam steps in and says, well, I'll take the bill. The bill was taken on by someone. Why? Because forgiveness comes at a cost. Even a relation. I think about just family strife. Like somebody's hurt you in your family. Somebody has to take that cost on for that relationship to be restored. It doesn't just go away. When my parents divorced, my dad said, I'm going to take this cost on. I was not the father I should be. So one of the ways he took this cost, he's like, I'm not going to date. I'm going to focus wholeheartedly on my kids. And the reason why post-divorce was not as terrible as it could be is because my dad absorbed the cost. The cost goes somewhere. It doesn't float into space. And Jesus says, I'll be the one to absorb the cost. So you don't have to. Takes me to my final question. We'll end our time here. How do we actually receive this substitution? I got to think about, we've got kids in here that parents have been bringing them to church since they were a baby. You've heard this message before. But I'm going to tell you again, very simply. Some of you received this message years ago. I'm not going to tell you anything, no. I'm just going to remind you of what happened. In your life. Days of old people would say it's the ABCs of the gospel. Admit, believe, confess. You have to admit that you are a sinner. You have to take ownership of what you've done. Barabbas. How is Barabbas described in this? He's a robber. If, well, let me find other ways. to. Let me go to Luke. Luke says, oh, he's the guy who was in prison for insurrection and murder. Well, let me, that escalated quickly. Let me go over here. Mark says he's a rebel. Matthew says he's a notorious prisoner. Like our lives, no matter how we want to paint it in the best possible picture, if we flip the pages, we're always going to find angles where like Josh is an insecure, angry, self-righteous, judgmental human being. And he's got a dirty mind. Whoa, I didn't want to go there. 
It's called sin. We have to admit that we're like Barabbas. Barabbas' names even means son of the father. It's God's way to say, just one more time, I'm going to be abundantly clear. Barabbas is the son of Adam, just like we all are. I am a sinner. That's it. Counseling friend I had coffee with us last week, he was describing what makes a successful counseling relationship. He said for the biggest, it's a pie chart with three parts. The biggest part, 45% of it, I don't know how to get with these numbers, is the client's readiness for counseling and help. Take that to faith in Christianity and what we're talking about today. 100% of this falls on your readiness to admit that you're a sinner. I am Barabbas. I'm not Jesus. I'm a robber. I'm a rebel. I'm a prisoner of my own doing. I am Barabbas. The second thing you got to do is you got to actually turn your gaze from Barabbas to Jesus and like Pilate say, I believe in Jesus I find no guilt in him. He is the perfect one. I believe that Jesus is the perfect Messiah of Israel. I don't know all the story of Israel. All this stuff is confusing, but I believe Jesus is more perfect than I. I'm a sinner, and Jesus is not. And then finally, you need to confess that you actually need a substitute. You've got to stand there and say, I have to be substituted. Barabbas, Jesus, need to swap. I cannot take this on myself. I have to take this pardon. There's an old Supreme Court case, 1833. George Wilson was convicted of robbing the U.S. mail, and he put the carrier in danger, and he was sentenced to death. And he would not take the pardon. And they wrote this into the statement. A pardon is a deed. I've offered you substitution. I've offered you freedom. But the Supreme Court said this, a pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. And a delivery is never complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And if it is rejected, we have discovered no power in this court to ever force it upon him. You have to receive it. You have to accept it. You have to say, I need a substitute. I don't want my sin to be the last word I give God before I meet him. I want Jesus standing as my substitute. But that does not happen by osmosis. That does not happen by your parents' face somehow trickling down into you magically. It happens by you individually saying, I need Jesus. I am Barabbas, but I need Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? He offers himself as a sacrifice. And what did he do right after the sacrifice? Back to that Hebrews passage. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for your sins, my sins, he sat down as a way to say, this is done. We're about to go make some mozzarella sticks and cheese balls and all sorts of cheese. We're going to cook it every which way. And at some point, we're going to sit down because the work is done. And Jesus sat down. The work is done. There is no more substitution work to be done. It's done. Jesus is sitting. Have you received that? If you have, you have 100% forgiveness. Relationship with him. You have a far better picture than Ozzy and batting gloves. You have a God who has substituted himself in your place that you didn't deserve, just like Barabbas. This is good news. This is what we stand on as a church, that he is our substitute. Let's pray together. God, we want a faith that is robust and is all of life and matters on Monday morning and matters on 
Thursday in the boardroom meeting and matters in my work meetings and matters when I'm in school studying. But God, we don't want to have all that at the expense of missing this simple truth that Jesus is the perfect substitute. That more than having a life that is full and life-giving and full of purpose, that we have a life that we know we can stand confidently before you because Jesus has stepped in as our substitute. The blood that you have been whispering for all this time has been shouted on the cross and we received it by faith. So God, I pray for those in this room that have trusted this, that at one point this was brand new to them. I pray that you just refresh in them a sense of delight and encouragement that Jesus has taken it all. God, for those on the fence, those figuring out, those playing religion still due to what they've come from, what family backgrounds, whatever they've dabbled in, and trying to figure out where Jesus in Christianity fits with all this, I pray that this would be unapologetically louder than all the others that the substitution of Jesus Christ is the greatest news we could ever receive. And there's no point in going to look for better news than this, that they would stop and they'd receive it here now. God, for those in this room, I think especially the younger people who have a sense of their sin, but kind of are trusting that God's going to give them time. And they have lots of seasons of life to finally take hold of this truth. I pray that you would convict them that they stand as exiles and they stand condemned to death apart from you and that no other person in this world can receive this substitution but them. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving so many of these people in our church and thank you for the fact that it's finished, that this religion is not confusing. We stand on finished work, so I pray that's what we do with the little bit of time we have left. We would stand and sing the finished work of Jesus Christ. 